0: It is July the 28th, 2022, and this is curiously polar. Yes. We're back. Episode 160. Good morning, Mario. How are you doing today? And
1: Chris. <laughs> I'm doing fine. Very good. good to be here.
0: Ah, good to have you back. We are. And then now Henry's gone, but uh, Henry will be back in the next one and it's all we're, we're juggling. We're juggling. Of um course. Uh, let's see. We are going to talk about satellite agriculture yeah. and penguins. Yes, Yay. yes, My favorite yes. animal.
1: So, yeah, and favorite subject also with satellites, I suppose. Uh, probably, probably. <laughs> so,
0: um,
1: you brought us a yeah.
0: topic about satellite broadband, hmm. broadband yeah. for the Arctic. What are we looking at?
1: We are looking at uh, communication. In the arctic and especially communication people to people or people to institutions or something i mean How something with science and
0: right and... now let's say you have you have a research station up on somewhere in the arctic and uh, you mm. want to do a video conference with someone on terra firma
1: well that? let's say that if you are in new Olosund, in svalbard yeah uh, it's a research uh, consortium up in new Olosund, you will have very good internet, actually, better than most places on Earth because they have a huge cable. Actually, they had two, but one has been cut uh, this uh, this uh, spring, this past spring, and it's still not repaired. But they have a big optical fiber connection to the backbone. Yes. So, so if you are in Jolison you shouldn't use Wi-Fi. And there are because of the measuring instruments that are used out there. True. But All you can use your cable stuff, to yeah. plug it in. Yeah. Plug in your computer or your device, and uh, then once you are wired up, you have fantastic conditions. And this picture that we take from Space News is about the um, the array that's just above uh, Longyearbyen, just above the main uh, the main settlement. And it shows the ice-cut domes that are the that are monitoring the atmosphere the stratosphere right. in the background in the fog and then you have this array of antennas that are from one web that are more communication satellites.
0: Oh and, okay so 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 in the background the ones are doing research and the ones in the front are doing the communication to the satellites.
1: Communications yes because yeah. because there are there are different systems as we know I mean traditionally yes. if you're talking about Nansen and Amundsen they or uh, frankly all you know, the people before that they would they would travel and leave messages in cairns of where they were in the uh, what they had been doing and their findings and things so they would take up like you know a metal container like a like a rod of metal or a bottle put a message the classical message in a bottle and then leave it in a stone pile that would be very visible from far away Oh, and then and, someone would find then, it and take it back home. Yeah, like and that. and if somebody came, then they would open the uh, <laughs> the message. They would normally copy it and leave the original inside or copied and leave the copy and take the original depending on the things. And this is a subject that's about a, a film about Aina Mikkelsen that is uh that has come out um recently I think it was this uh, this spring that is talking about these expeditions in northeast Greenland going and looking for the north of Greenland and um about about this with the cairns and explaining very well what happens and also the mistake that can be done when you take away the message original message and you take it away but then you get lost in your own expeditions and the the actual very precious original message is lost it is not a very reliable form of communication let's put it that way well yeah well it's not a regular communication home like we are used to uh, nowadays then there was like uh, in uh, with the advent of radio communication there is radio communication but you know radio communication is not very easy i mean you can have and now just wait a second you all have radios like like a VHF radio like this mm-hmm. one here that works on a line of sight and it, depending on the frequency that one uses one can work on line of sight or bend Across uh, continents, uh, it's like the the, the... the the reflections of the stratosphere kind of thing yeah. for long range. Yeah, the long uh, waves could be, wave stuff, could be yeah. reflections or not. I mean, even with a VHF, you can go very uh, on a two meters band. You can go very far if there is a reflective layer on the in this in the uh, up the in, the, in, yeah. the, in the this in the sky, and uh, and you can reach very far out. I mean, from Norway, you can reach. Uh, Europe southern europe or something from here when right. you have the right conditions like for example auroras can be a really good reflector for for um, for the uh, for the radio transmissions or they can be a disturbance as well but depending on the frequency you have this but this is also like it requires heavy equipment or in any case it requires very good knowledge of the situation and it's not as reliable, and especially it's for voice communication. If you want to use a radio, you can use a, a, an all-time modem that sends a sound signal through the radio waves. There are several systems. You can have, a, a uh, for example, a system called Pactor. There are three versions of the Pactor. The, the latest one is Pactor 3 that is like the old-time modem, you know? like It's it's like very fast Morse
0: code, pretty much, that then gets decoded into whatever you want it to be, yeah.
1: So you communicate by radio from a a transmitting station to a receiving station somewhere that is then connected to the internet, for example, and, and then you can send an email, simple messages, but it's very asynchronous, the communication. You cannot have a video conference. So if you're talking about a video conference, you cannot do it with a modem of that kind. And then and then there have been uh, the uh, the uh, the newer ways of doing these are using satellites. And then using satellites, for example, for voice communication, but also for data communication that is maybe a little bit heavier, but still at very low speeds. And one of the first ones was the Inmarsat system. And I believe that you might have a coverage map of the Inmarsat system. Yes, we do. Here we go. and InMarsat is using uh, the Landsat satellites uh, and is they are placed on, uh, on, a, on a geostationary orbit. You see a picture here of the globe, like flattened out. And you have the satellites that are along the equator. And one is, for example, over the Gulf of uh, Guinea, like in the Atlantic. Then there is one over uh, just north of Madagascar uh, in the... Uh, in the indian ocean there is there is one in the pacific and these are com- receiving messages from land stations and then relaying it to receiving stations on the uh, on the earth on the on the um, on land and there are several of these receiving stations and and this means that uh, when you are on a ship for example you can call you, your immarsat satellite if it is in a line of sight And this Immersat satellite is then relaying the message to a base station and communicating through the telephone network, for example, to a computer. And it's very low bandwidth, but but it's almost covering most of the world's population. The problem with this is that the polar areas, the problem for us that are dealing with polar areas, is that since these satellites are geostationary, even if they are quite high up, they are just on the equator. And if you are the pole, they at one point, they get below the horizon.
0: I see, because they have to rotate with the Earth and up in the pole, there is oh. no rotation when you go yeah. out to geostationary well, they, they distance, They're just
1: above the central Atlantic, for example, on top of the, uh, of the Cape right. Verde Islands. They are just above there. And that one satellite is staying there. And if you move towards the pole at one point, you will see that the... Satellite goes below the horizon, yes. and then you cannot com- you cannot uh, communicate with it anymore. And for example, I've used a mini M uh, terminal at one point in the uh, early 2000s, and it was like a like a laptop, where the screen is the antenna, yeah. and then you had to orient it towards the position of the satellite at that place in Greenland, you could get both Atlantic East and Atlantic West satellites and see if between the mountains, if you could reach this very line of sight satellite, and it was very unreliable. Yeah. And then more recently, uh, a system called Iridium uh, with a totally different uh, concept with many more satellites. It was a a very... A very uh, difficult birth. It was Motorola that was at the base of this, but uh, they have uh, had problems at the beginning uh, with sending up enough satellites. But now they do have enough satellites. Uh, they have had it for quite a lot—about sixty something satellites—and they are on a, a polar orbit. So, so in Marsat is geostationary,
0: which means the satellite is always over the same point of the Earth, and uh, yeah, uh, the orbit means and means the they they rise and uh, go. And move over the sky and then yeah. uh, yeah. sink the again pol- after
1: the horizon. Yeah, the, the polar orbit is an orbit that goes through a point about above the North Pole and above the South Pole. And and they they say let's say they, they are inertially stationary with respect of the of the <laughs> of the universe, and the, and the Earth rotates. So the satellite every time it does an orbit, it moves uh, on the surface I- of the Earth.
0: I do have some first-hand uh, experience with Iridium because I think back in 2009 with our, fir- our first uh, Himalayan hike, we went off-grid, so to speak. N- now everything is covered there. They, the, Yes. There, there is, there's there's uh, mobile coverage, but back then we had an Iridium phone with us to be able to call home. And I remember a, a couple of phone calls, and those were very spotty because you had like five minutes for for the satellites to in the sky and then you had to wait for the next one and there weren't enough and it was um, Mm. it was painful
1: yes it was um, at the beginning there were too few satellites because the the project went bankrupt if i remember correctly and uh, so they didn't have a a complete coverage and the handover between one satellite and the other didn't happen seamlessly it's a little bit like the gsm phones at the beginning probably better one cell to the other Yes, it is much better, and the terminals are usually like they are like this uh, this VHF radio. So they have an antenna, a very big antenna, and a keyboard. They are like a little bit like old time Nokia telephones or Motorola telephones with a keyboard. With a, you can send text yeah. messages, and you can send voice, and you can have a very low speed, uh, like two thousand four hundred bps yeah. data connection if you have this. And the the connection is uh, through a, a SIM card. I mean, you have uh, your subscription on a sim card with a mobile phone number and um, and you can uh, you can use them all over the globe and for the polar interested people since the orbits are geo uh, are um, polar orbits the more you get to the pole the, the the closer you get to the pole the more you have a a, um, a tight coverage and these satellites, they are all relaying to base stations on or on the surface of the Earth. So the communication between two satellite phones by Inmar- by Iridium goes through an Earth station. So they don't talk between one satellite and the other satellite. If you have two phones that are close to each other, you do not talk. I mean, it's like on a it's like on a land GSM phone. You have to go through the mobile network. So you. Even if you are si- sitting in the same house, you call a phone in your same house, it will still have to go through the central to the, the cell tower and back to the other phone through a cell tower and right. go through the uh, uh, like a, a central system. And Iridium also has a little system called Iridium Go that is uh, like a box like this one here with an antenna. You pair it, you communicate with your with your mobile phone, and you put an antenna like this outside, and this is connected through Bluetooth to your mobile phone. Actually, not Bluetooth. I think it's Wi-Fi to your mobile phone. And then you can sit, for example, inside a tent and have this antenna outside and... Uh, it uh, has also a limited um, through through their proprietary proprietary app they have a um, like data connection for uh, email and for weather forecast and uh, a little bit for uh, like for tracking like I see you know, the a lot of these.
0: Uh, let me see. I, I, see. I see. I see. The data speeds are like under one megabit, so we are yes, yes. talking fairly slow compared to like terrestrial internet at this point.
1: But this was the first system competing on the market. That now is uh, these uh, trackers that, for example, um, uh, Garmin has the InReach. Uh, the InReach. Sorry, uh, now it's uh, saying raise the antenna to operate, and it's making a little bit of <laughs> noise. But a, uh, but, a little uh, melody for you. But let's say that that this Iridium has the possibility of, this Iridium Go can, through a mobile phone, use voice communication, uh, sending SMS messages, like text messages, Mm -hmm. and receive uh, updates about the weather and send information about where the whereabouts of the of the tracker. Mm -hmm. So this means that people on land can log into a website and see where the unit is sending from, and which means that for an expedition, uh, it's quite nice. Weather, saying everything is okay, we are here, or please send flowers or chocolates or something, in -hmm. case, uh, or we are arriving early at or late at the pickup point. So these are pretty nice. And it's the same, it's a service that you have with uh, Garmin InReach. Um, it's a little device that has a GPS and can send uh, through your mobile phone, for example, or even through a keyboard, can send a message, text message, back to to uh, a, a main station or a, a server that then can distribute it or just show it on um, show the position of the tracker on a right on a on a map on a background map, but. To go back to the, to the actual uh, subject of this, we, the, uh, the subject was uh, talked about on, on Space News uh, uh, is that uh, there is a more and more interest for high data connectivity and uh, for uh, uh, coverage and in the Arctic and in the Antarctic, and especially the Arctic. And uh, because there is uh, increase in tourism, increase in research, increase in prospecting, possibly uh, a lot of, uh, like, for example, deep sea mining up in the ocean, uh, in the Arctic Ocean, all these things that are kind of controversial, but still there is a potential market for operators in areas that are not exactly served well by the current systems. By
0: the one way, them the, the noise in the background is construction yeah. work on your
1: side. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, no it's construction work here and uh, out of my house. Um, you, uh, Chris, you are very uh, very knowledgeable about uh, Starlink. For example, and Starlink it's, is one of the systems that is competing.
0: Starlink for, uh, is one of the one of one of the latest um, satellite constellations in lower Earth orbit. That is. Um, that is in the process of disrupting a few of the existing uh, incumbents. We're talking uh, global coverage pretty much. Um, Not quite up to the poles, or it's getting there slowly, but they just launched a a rocket that is serving a polar orbit. We have a live tracker here um, where you can get an idea of the... uh, satellites live moving and uh, what you see here is well first of all the little white dots are the individual starling satellites the green uh, hexagons are the coverage area and that is expanding i think they are in like i don't even know probably about 100 countries right now and they are Mm -hmm. expanding this then you see these lines of satellites these are um, launched into a, a start orbit and then they take a month or two to move into their final orbits and spread out. So you see these trains of satellites first and those are um, actually sometimes visible from Earth. So you have probably seen some news coverage of that. Um, and now what we're seeing here is a few of those orbiting right under under a specific line um, that, are, that have been launched recently. There are several launches and now here's one um, that is pointing straight at the pole. Um, and we have a few already in polar orbits, but those will pretty much cover more and more. I think there are a few more polar launches planned, so that will, uh, sooner or later, provide internet. And the interesting thing with Starlink is that we're talking real internet speeds. We're talking uh, we're 1-200 megabits from a uh, Starlink antenna. Uh, down and up probably at least 50 megabits up. Mm -hmm. So we're talking a super fast connection that works and at one point will work pretty much everywhere on the planet, including on the seas.
1: Yes and uh, and I've seen that there are now um, new antennas for mobile platforms like uh, yes. RVs or or uh, big ships they are a little bit expensive because we are talking about uh, I thought it was something about 50000 euros for so we or for, 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 home,
0: antenna. <laughs> for home and RV usage we're talking uh, $500 initial cost and then 100 per month for um the big ship usage for for uh usage on the seas we're talking uh, i think five thousand um yeah. on a monthly basis but that is targeted i think towards like yeah. cruise ships and these kind of things
1: yeah and they they say yes it's uh, about yeah five thousand five thousand dollars a month with uh, a right. one-time hardware cost of uh, ten thousand for but Still, yeah. I mean, what do you, the
0: Starling Maritime if, is, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's if you have clients, if you have like a cruise mm. ship or a big uh, shipping companies, sure. that is, that is mm. cost of operation,
1: and that is not yeah. that. And these expensive. are and these are uh, low, uh, low Earth orbits, so they are uh, closer to the surface of the Earth, and this means that the uh, satellite uh, can cope with a very high speed of transmission.
0: And, uh, and they there. Yeah. and and they have handoff between satellites, automatic. So mm. all you do is put the antenna Even the antenna levels itself with the motor. So yeah. it finds the satellites. It's, it is one of the easiest use mm. systems at this point. And the orb- yeah. orbit is around 400 or 500 kilometers. So um, the latencies are very short. So you can do real-time video conferences and that kind of stuff. You can do online gaming if you want to. Yeah. That's and and these
1: are things that, for example, airlines are looking very much forward to. And this was another another reason for the, especially the Arctic orbits or the, the coverage of the Arctic areas is there are a lot of the of the routes between, uh, between Europe and, and Asia and North America are passing over the pole or very close to the Arctic uh, areas uh, that are now. Very badly covered, and uh, of course, like with especially with uh, business travel and the possibility of holding meetings and video conferences from a, from a, from an airplane is uh, is quite uh, quite an improvement or quite a quite an extra an extra gimmick that you can sell a plane well, ticket for. The question is,
0: how much is it a gimmick? Because for uh, at one point, it is going to be a competitive advantage for people traveling because they can now use that time uh, and continue their work if they want to. So, And it's and enabling strategic. new applications. So there's a lot of uh, interesting things coming out of that.
1: And there is also a strategic advantage of having this uh, for uh, for defense or... Oh, absolutely! I mean, applications. We're we're
0: looking we're looking at uh, at Ukraine at this point, where <clears throat> Starlink is very present and uh, very well uh, capable of of uh, avoiding. Avoiding efforts
1: by the Russians to disturb the communications. Yeah. So. And so, I mean, these are the uh, the communications we have now. But th- there are other systems that are being tested. And, and some of them use uh, a uh, uh, an inclined plane orbit. So orbits that are neither equatorial, also geostationary, or polar, So going directly over the pole, but right like slightly inclined. We talked in previous episodes about these systems and covering, and coverage. For example, in in Canada, Uh, if you want to cover the northern part of Canada, it would be good to have a satellite just above it. So it's uh, it's an orbit or orbits that are going like slicing Canada east to west or west to east <laughs> as mm-hmm. you want to have it but staying over the Arctic or Canada. and this is for example the Arctic satellite broadband mission that is a, a joint venture between Inmarsat and the Norwegian Ministry of Defence and the US Air Force and uh, and these are using actually the uh, Falcon 9 the SpaceX Falcon 9 uh, um, vectors for for these there is a Russian satellite communication RSCC that is also planned for four satellites in Highly elliptical orbits. that are going also going to go deep in the Arctic Circle because, of course, Russia is a large part of its territory over the um, over the Arctic areas, and it's uh, the infrastructure on the ground will be uh, extremely expensive if one had to have, like for example, high speed internet. There are. This is uh, TELSAT, there's these uh, uh, um, plans about uh, the indigenous communities in Canada, like uh, reaching the different indigenous communities, like Point Inlet, uh, Resolute, uh, like you name it, Joe Haven, these areas that are very far out and uh, now have some sort of coverage, but uh, they would benefit for high-speed internet for Many different reasons, but like think about schooling uh, distance learning, think about uh, hospitals, like if you could have a uh, really good communication with a with a telemedicine center that uh, can uh, uh, give uh, advice for example diagnose, diagnostics but even being able to have a little robot for simple operations or even more complicated operations on site without having to move personnel in the winter for example when the weather is uh, very bad and uh, might uh, it's often prohibitive com- uh, for uh, for travel uh, for uh, um, surgeon teams or something so there are the, all of these uh, all of these missions and they all depend on uh, of course on the financing these are commercial uh, mostly commercial um, operations and they uh, are uh, coming up and there is going to be a lot of competition which might be good might be bad <laughs> let's hope that uh, they don't incur in problems like uh, like uh, iridium had at the beginning for motorola so not enough funding and a few accidents because motorola i think they were delayed a lot by the accidents with the um with the space shuttle it was supposed to set up uh, some satellites so if you have uh, of course vectors that are not being able to uh, to deliver uh, or that have accidents like uh, satellites uh, exploding before they are set into service or even after that is uh, a problem and also like you mentioned that uh, Starlink is up in the media is uh, opposition by for example people that would like to see the sky untouched
0: well this brings us to an interesting point because I just a short while ago did an interview with an astronomer with uh, Meredith Rawls um, that I put on YouTube where she is uh, at the Rubin, Vera C. Rubin Observatory and she is um, directly directly um, not just affected in her work, but um, she is one of the, I think, central people to track these things and to um, point towards that issue. And uh, to yeah. she's on, on certain co- committees that are trying to uh, find ways to mitigate that and maybe even get new regulation out on that kind of stuff. So um, there is an entire com- community, not just astronomers, but also astrophotographers, um, who are wary of um, more bright spots or more potentially bright spots in the sky disturbing measurements and
1: photography? And then, and then, like as a final as a final note, I think that uh, it's important that these systems are uh, redundancy on have redundancy, uh, meaning, for example, that, that there has to be. One cannot rely only and solely on that form of communication via satellites because we are in a system that is called the solar system. We have the solar wind and there are explosions on the surface of the sun that can create blackouts or even damage permanently the electronics that is in these satellites. And if there are vital systems that are depending on high-speed communication or in any case of communication, we have to be... Uh, sure, to make sure that the communication is continuous, and therefore also in the case of a of a solar storm, or uh, in the event of a breakage, or even, you know, like there are satellites that can shoot, I mean, satellites can be shot down by lasers or others, so... Yes. It's uh, it's a big topic these days, and it won't a big,
0: become a, a smaller topic. topic over time. It exactly. will be growing. Um, speaking there is, of, there is a lot of things happening. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of growing, let us move over to agriculture. You brought us an agricultural topic, yes,
1: and that is that. Um, there has been uh, an article uh, published on the uh, proceedings of an international conference on environmental systems in 2015 that reviewed the Antarctic greenhouse and plant production facilities. And uh, they went uh, the authors. um, There are several authors from Germany and uh, especially from Cambridge and from Florida and uh, from NASA, actually, that were looking at... uh, the production of plants in Antarctica, so in a place that is absolutely adverse <laughs> to uh, to growing anything uh, that is more than a lichen. And uh, they found out that uh, actually there are field sites since uh, 1902 or even maybe a little bit before. So we are talking about 120 years of testing of how to grow plants in Antarctica. And uh, and originally for example in the discovery expedition in 1902 they were uh, trying to grow seeds for science like for example mustard seeds uh, if you have this article that i showed with you the figure 1 is um, the 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 actual article on um, not the one on uh, on the conversation but uh, the scientific article the PDF. If you go down on figure two, you see that there are pictures of boxes uh, with mustard seeds and cress uh, that were grown in uh, Antarctica. And uh, in figure two that you're showing now is a map of Antarctica with the sites of different places where experiments with growing plants have uh, been performed. And... um, and the uh, the trend now, I mean, it is, of course, for science, but it's also for the health of the expeditions. We're talking about 1902, so we're talking about expeditions that were probably overwintering. They were spending a lot of time down there, and scurvy was, and I mean, it still is a problem now. It is something to to take care of, But uh, but at that time, they were really trying to figure out how to avoid having scurvy because the production the industrial production of uh, yep. vitamin C like vitamin C pills was not really up to the standards that we have now so now you can have integral like pills that can combat scurvy but then we have also a lot of other things we have to maintain our microbiome we have to have fibers and plant fibers kids eat your eat- vegetables exactly so so we have uh, problems about growing crops in hostile areas with low light, for example, the Mm -hmm. Antarctic winter, so no sun radiation or very, very little light and plants need light to 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 photosynthesize. So we have exactly the conditions that are interesting also for NASA, for space flights, for long-term space flights. How do people survive and get enough food, enough fibers, enough vitamins, enough minerals through a year or two or three or five of uh, of space flight, and and this is why Antarctic agriculture is particularly important for NASA, and this is why NASA was involved in the in this article here. This uh, the one uh, the one author Thomas uh, Graham is from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, and he is very interested in this sort of things. So quite quite interesting. So
0: we're talking. Um, well, no- nowadays we have some trends in places where farming is difficult called vertical farming, where you would have farms that are inside of, I don't know, shipping containers and things like that. And you would have um, modern LED-lit solutions that don't use too much energy for the light and so on. And uh, that that is, I think, all directly related with what we're seeing here.
1: Yes, we're talking about hydroponics. We're talking about growing plants without Dirt without earth, uh, so just on uh, on a substrate of, of water and uh, maybe a fiber, like mm, mineral fibers or something that, that can uh, can have the plants grow. We are talking about uh, also about plant diseases and uh, plant uh, symbionts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like there are plants like beans, for example, the leguminous plants. They need to have uh, nitrogen-fixating bacteria. A microorganism in the roots in order to grow, and uh, and and this is um, like growing plants. It's not just growing one organism; is actually having the whole plant growing ecosystem functioning right, so that you can have the best possible. And you have to think
0: of pollination and things, um, which then probably turns into becomes a manual operation and so on.
1: Yeah and and the, i mean in popular popular science i wouldn't call it popular science but in popular culture here we have for example was it the martian uh, where uh, <laughs> where we have the uh, the uh, growing of potatoes the poop potatoes uh, yeah yeah the poop potatoes So, like how do you how do you fertilize how do you grow potatoes in a situation that is kind of extreme but it, like we are we are coming to we're we're very quickly coming to this sort of problems if if um like even a, a base on the moon uh would probably profit of having of growing as much food as possible up on the on the surface of the moon instead of having to transport it back and forth from earth uh if it's a manned that base that pdf on... is very full of information i love it yes. there's so many good
0: photos it's... in there and stuff very nice
1: and as it is a, a a conference paper it is a little bit more uh, verbose and more uh, like easy to read than uh, than a pure a pure scientific paper so quite oh, interesting so- i very much advise uh, having a look at the links on our show notes and uh, so as to find out how to grow plants in a place where there is no light and no earth to grow them in
0: <laughs> anyway. so Last but not least, we are going back to penguins and uh, yes. robot in that context. I remember we talked about a penguin-shaped robot that dives and uh, follows yes. the, the penguins around. Uh, how about this
1: other one here? Yeah, and these are like we, we are talking about these underwater drones. But now we are talking about studying emperor penguins. So, uh, mm-hmm. how do we? Monitor emperor penguins. I mean, they are very far into the uh, inland in Antarctica. They are very difficult to get to colonies, and uh, and they should not be disturbed because they are they are not endangered, but uh, they might be very quickly endangered because of the changes in the climate. So, um, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts, uh, in part of MIT. Um, has a project uh, that um, called Mare, um, and it's the monitoring the health of the Antarctic marine ecosystems using the emperor penguins as a sentinel. So, this project is uh, using like several other projects. I think we talked about, uh, for example, uh, elephant seals gathering data. From the depth of the sea, well, right. uh, the emperor penguins can also be used because uh, to gather data about the ecosystem. Because emperor penguins take long foraging trips out of sea, and they, uh, uh, we can, for example, through satellite tracking, know where they are going, how deep they are going, and then we can also gather their poop when uh, at the colony and figure out uh, how uh, and what they ate and where they ate it through analysis of the content of this these uh, scats and uh, the the uh, WHOI the Woods Hole Sonographic Institute uh, has a uh, long term monitoring of uh, emperor penguins and they developed now a robot that they call ECHO which is uh, a yellow robot it's like a a little uh, caterpillar (laughs) a little I'm um, I'm very disappointed that it does not look like a penguin Ah, at all they should have they should have exactly <laughs> and uh, they are uh, removing human presence from the emperor penguin colony and they are accounting and cataloging the birds so they is taking information about how many birds there are how big they are it is uh, a uh, the possibility of uh, uh, assessing the size of the of the Penguin. And this is a robot that is about three foot tall, and it has a, a, a LiDAR, so a light detection and ranging, a kind of a radar uh, with, with light, a GPS, and can uh, navigate autonomously, and um, it has uh, the possibility of reading... Uh, radio frequency id tags that uh, scientists have put in the penguins you know like uh, identifying the the oh um, so so they ring the, uh, them the dogs like, like birds pretty yeah, instead much. of instead of ringing you put uh, you put a, a little microchip under the skin okay and so you can uh, identify the uh, the um, oh so the individual so it's like, penguins it's like at the checkout in your grocery
0: store they go beep 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 and just yeah, practically count them in this way and see how they move and, and stuff the,
1: Yes, and, and uh, I mean the British have uh, something at Bird Island. They have a a, a, a obligator pathway for the penguins to pass when they're going from the colony to the sea. And in this, I uh, think we talked about this, and the penguins, when they go over this, they are both identified, but they also weighed. In this case, the robot it doesn't have a possibility of weighing the penguins, but they can <laughs> assess the size of the penguin using the uh, using the ranging, the, uh, the lighter the, uh, the, um, the lighter. And um, so, Mr. And penguin, course, please like, step yeah. on the scale. No, it doesn't We work step on the way. scale. And it's really fantastic. So they they can collect the data, they can transmit the data through Wi Fi to a, a research center that is uh, close to the uh, Neumeyer station, uh, the German Antarctic research base Neumeyer station. And uh, then um, they can, uh, like, even identify the individual penguin with a very high, it has uh, 16 high-resolution cameras that are capable of really, like, following a single penguin within the colony from a distance. And it's fantastic.
0: Yeah. Is that, okay, so so this thing is partially autonomous based on the article, um, partially remote-controlled. Um, is it... How how do the penguins react to that thing driving among them? I guess it's electrical so it doesn't do make a lot of noise and things. Is it just like yeah. something they ignore after a while or
1: Well, the the article here doesn't say uh how the penguins react to it, but uh if uh, my experience of being together with other penguins uh mm-hmm applies to this is uh, that the penguins get habituated to having this presence around. So they get bored by it
0: because it doesn't do anything to them.
1: Yeah, it's not uh, not anything that looks I mean, first of all, it's much less invasive than a human or several humans. True. Yeah, the job without talking, without smelling strange. I mean, it might have some smell, but it's a very constant smell, <laughs> and Reese, it doesn't uh, smells. <laughs> and and it's probably like cleaned because everything in Antarctica has to be uh, clean for biosecurity reasons. So sure. it is a, a much less invasive. It's a, it's a progress towards a less invasive use, uh, a, a less invasive data gathering for science. So that's. Uh, but uh, of course. It has. It is a disturbance in any case. It is uh, yellow and it's not a mound of snow, and it doesn't look like a penguin. Maybe they should have followed your advice and make a penguin-like thing. But maybe that's even more disturbance because they would be feeling th- uh, leaving the penguins feeling threatened by you know competition for a for a mate or for a site, particular site. So maybe this is actually the best solution. I think it's probably no. better because
0: otherwise maybe the penguins try to mate with it, and that would not mm. disturb the. What disturbed the research? It is fun. It's a fun idea, though. I think I I like this a lot.
1: And of course, this is a is a joint venture with, or uh, is a is a robot that has been created by a a company called Clear Path Robotics, and uh, and they have uh, and they have experience in in a lot of the technology here. And this is a technology that is tested on uh, one of the most hostile environments on Earth. And maybe this is something that can be used other places as well. Well, we can start uh, cataloging penguins on
0: Mars, for example. Exactly. All right. Um, Okay. That brings us to the end of this episode about... Satellites and communication in the Antarctic and the Arctic about biology and of course about penguins and agriculture.
1: agriculture. Yes, and agriculture. So
0: yeah, that was it for this episode. Thanks everyone for being here. We are Thank back you. in a week with more. Thanks Mario for putting all this together. We'll uh, be back soon. You can find us online at curiouslypoto.com and that's it. Bye-bye. 拜拜